Darren Fox, and this is a Fast Leader podcast. And today we are talking about culture, specifically culture in terms of how you as a people manager can manage and implement the culture that you want to have in your team. Today, joining with me, I have two culture and leadership experts to give you these practical hints and tips. Fiona Robertson and Celeste Halliday, who I've met as being co-authors in our recent book, which got launched in September called What the Hell Do We Do Now? And after reading both their chapters, I thought they had a lot of great advice that they could share with our frontline people leader listeners. So Fiona and Celeste, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. There's lots of definitions out there in terms of culture. Every time I pick up a book, there seems to be another definition out there. So I think for the purpose of this podcast, let's agree on a working definition for the next 30 minutes. Fiona, what do you think that definition should be? Yeah, uh, it's such a great question. Culture is one of those words, isn't it, that every single person who uses it means something slightly different. I define culture as the rules of belonging in a group. And the reason I define culture that way is because... The human brain has essentially not changed for about 80,000 years. So our biological evolution is glacially slow. But our cultural evolution as a species is very fast and moving faster all the time. Someone mentioned to me the other day that we've had Beyonce longer than we've had Facebook. So Beyonce 2002, Facebook 2006, only 14 years ago. It's extraordinary how much the world has changed in that time. And so because of these two different forms of evolution, we're kind of all walking around with this machine in our heads that is just not designed for the environment that we've created for ourselves. And why that's important is because our good old Maslow's hierarchy of needs that some of us will have heard about, the pyramid-shaped model that the bottom of it says that the most important need of human beings is food, water, and shelter. That sounds sort of obvious and sensible. But it turns out that 80,000 years ago, if you weren't a member of a group, you couldn't get access to food, water, and shelter, and so you'd die. And therefore, the human brain, because it hasn't changed in all of that time from a biological or genetic point of view, the human brain still believes if we're not a member of a group, we will die. And so that means that belonging to groups is actually the most important need of human beings. And so it means that when we join a new group, we have these evolutionary superpowers that allow us to watch what is happening in that group and to very quickly figure out what does it take to belong in this group and what loses belonging in this group. And we then adopt the behaviour that is successful in the group that we've joined. That's really what culture is. Culture is what are the rules of belonging in this group? What earns me belonging in this place? What loses me belonging in this place? And once we understand what those rules are, then and only then do we have an opportunity to change them. I completely agree with Fiona's definition. I think it's beautifully worded. Well done, Fiona. I think what happens is we get very esoteric about what culture is. It seems like something that's bigger than us and something we can't control. And so what I like to work with leaders on is really understanding that every single person impacts culture and we ultimately get the culture we deserve. So it's up to us to be definitive about what we're trying to be and how we're trying to work with each other and to hold each other to account positively, to encourage each other so that we've got a group to belong to that we feel good in, that we can be ourselves in. 
Yeah, great. And in terms of that whole idea that our brains haven't changed in 80,000 years, for that very reason, we just hate change. Mm-hmm. Fiona, a question I have for you then is, nowadays with COVID and remote working, is creating that sense of belonging more difficult than it was pre-COVID? Mm, great question. Look, I think, yes, it is. It's interesting, that idea that the brain hasn't changed in all that time. Our brains are basically a threat detection pattern recognition machine. They're telling us that we need to belong. They're telling us we need to be together. And of course, during this last few months, we've had to be apart to stay safe. So our brain is telling us be together. Safety is together. And we've had to do the complete opposite. So there's this kind of cognitive dissonance that we've all been struggling with. This doesn't feel right to be apart from one another at this time when we feel under threat. And it's a real threat. It's not a perceived threat. I think there's a real challenge. And I think it means that leaders need to put in extra time and effort to make their people feel like they are part of something and to really listen to them and understand what's going on for them and make them feel like they belong. It is harder. It takes more time and effort at the moment than probably ever before. Yeah, yeah. So therefore, that implies, of course, if culture is belonging, then Celeste, therefore, managing culture has got to be a whole lot harder too. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think in terms of the COVID question, you know, my business is all about connection, human connection, and how connection actually powers our performance. Because when we feel safe and seen within a group, we are able to take risks, we're able to innovate, we're able to do things differently and grow and expand in a way that we just can't when we don't feel safe. So that's that real kind of reason for any leader to work on belonging for their team. We also know that positive psychology tells us that when you have a group that feel connected and positive and good about working with each other, that they get a 30% uplift in performance and sales, if there's sales involved, and also a 30% decrease in turnover and the bad things. It's really important in terms of our results and our performance to be going to a place or having a work group where we feel positive, engaged, and that we belong. You know, there's a a fascinating piece of research that I think might be relevant here. There's a researcher called Matthew Lieberman who heads up the social cognitive neuroscience team at UCLA. Fancy, fancy title. He managed to run an experiment that proves that the human brain can't distinguish between social pain and physical pain. And I'll just take a moment to describe the experiment because when I first read that, I was like, wait a minute sorry, the human brain can't distinguish between social pain and physical pain. Firstly, how can that be true? And secondly, you know, what are the implications of that? So I'll just very briefly describe the experiment. They were using a new technology called functional MRI machine. So essentially, this is an MRI machine you can wear on your head while you're doing things. And so scientists can study us while we're in the midst of an activity, as opposed to the sort of tubes you lie in. The subject of the experiment was wearing one of these and was put in front of a screen and told that they were going to be throwing a a ball, playing a game that threw a sort of virtual ball between themselves and two other people who were sitting in front of screens in other places. Mm -hmm. Now, the reality was there were no other people. It was all being played against a computer, but the person who was the subject of the experiment didn't know that. So in round one of the experiment, they're sitting watching this screen and they're told, I'm awfully sorry, we're having some technical difficulties. We can't connect 
you with the other players at the moment. Would you mind just waiting for a moment and watching the other two people throw the ball between them? And so, of course, what they were doing in that round of the experiment was taking a baseline of what was happening inside that person's brain. Then round two of the experiment, they're told, OK, you can join in now. And so for a while, this virtual ball was thrown between the three supposed people. But after a few minutes, the other two people would just start throwing it backwards and forwards between them again. And so the subject of the experiment was watching the exact same thing both times, these two other supposed people throwing a ball between them. But in round one, they believed they couldn't participate. And in round two, they believed they were being deliberately excluded. And sure enough, all the pain centres of their brains lit up like a Christmas tree and exactly the same pain centres that light up when you hit your thumb with a hammer. How does this work? I mean, this is back to what I said before. The brain hasn't changed in 80,000 years. It is a threat detection pattern recognition machine designed to keep us safe. And it believes that safety is social acceptance and this belonging factor. So I just found that completely fascinating. And so if you're not creating that sense of belonging for your team, then the brain will interpret that as a threat. And then you get that lack of safety that Celeste was talking about. Yeah. I love that example. Because I think, again, it's about understanding that culture is something we are creating all the time. So we have a culture in our family. We have a culture in the school our kids go to. In in their class, there's a culture that's separate to the bigger school. There's all these mini cultures happening everywhere. And, you know, I remember talking to my kids about the idea sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's not true. That study absolutely proves that when we're in the workplace and we are ostracized or excluded in some way and in the workplace that's as subtle as an eye roll when somebody speaks or a sigh when somebody contributes something or walks in the room I mean we know because we are basically primal animals thinking we're walking around as giant brains we can sense when we're not safe with people when we're being excluded and we don't belong And it's subtle in the workforce, but I actually think we haven't really progressed much from primary school. Like I sometimes sit and watch all the kids in my children's primary school playing these political kind of little games with each other of exclusion and inclusion. And I see the same things happening in teams that I'm working with all the time. We haven't really been given the tools to understand the radical impact we have on the people around us. Culture is catchy. Our behaviour is catchy. Positivity is catchy. And we've got to take some accountability for what we're spreading to other people. Yeah, absolutely. And quite often in my coaching with other managers, I talk about do not underestimate the impact that you're having, even when you're not saying or doing anything. Yeah. You're having an impact in terms of what you say and what you don't say and what you do and what you don't do. You simply being in the room, we're all having an impact on each other and culture is affected in real time continually by all these sort of interactions that are happening moment by moment. I think it was you, Celeste, that said you get the culture you deserve. And so you have a culture, whether you like it or not, there is a culture and you can choose to nurture it and manage it or ignore it, but there's still a culture. Yeah, yeah. I did a job in London where I very suddenly had literally thousands of people reporting to me. It it all happened very quickly. And before that, I'd been telling people how to lead. I'd been telling people what culture was. And I remember so clearly, you know, I was out of my own culture in Australia, in London. So I was a little bit of a fish out of water and the elevated doors would open in the morning and it felt like a sea of cubicles were in front of me with all these people that reported to me now. 
and they would look at me as the doors opened and it was like meerkats in the savannah, honestly. Mm-hmm. Heads popping up everywhere, <laughs> checking me out. And I might have just got a, a call to my mum feeling homesick and worried about being able to do a good job and I'd walk across to my office and just want to shut my door mm-hmm. because I could feel everyone's eyes on me and I realised that I was the weather. Exactly. And they were checking the weather because I was the most powerful person in the room, but I didn't see myself that way. So I didn't understand the impact I had on the culture of that room every day when I walked in. Am I smiling? Do I look stressed? Am I making eye contact and saying hello? Or am I just storming past and closing my door? Mm. Which I might have done sometimes. That is the most fantastic example. I work with a lot of leaders and so often they say to me, but Fiona, I'm just me. Mm. Why do they stop talking when I get in the lift? Back in the days when we got in lifts, why do the, the teachers stop talking when I walk into the staff room if I'm the principal? And I say, you're not just you. You're a symbol of your role. Yeah. You have more power than the people in that team. And they are going to look exactly as Celeste has just said. They're going to look to see, are they safe, essentially? Yeah. And again, the example Celeste gave of the kids, we're kind of little kids with big kid suits zipped over the top of us. And essentially, the question we're asking of our leaders are exactly the questions that little kids ask of their parents. Am I safe? And do you love me? Yep. In that order right? Am I safe? Do you love me? Yeah. And the organisational, you know, the team equivalent of that is providing that kind of psychological safety. So making sure it's okay to ask a question. It's okay to admit a mistake. It's okay to question the status quo. That's a safe thing to do. That answers the, am I safe question? Then do you love me? Do I belong here? Do you want me around? Do you like talking to me? I'd love to say we'd all grown up a lot, but I'm not sure much has changed. Much has changed. And I think that whole thing that you're touching on, which is every culture should be a culture of care because otherwise you're not creating that, do you love me, even if you're doing the belonging part. And for me, that's what COVID really showed me. I had so many leaders who struggled to connect effectively with their teams. And what happened at the start of COVID was this kind of groundswell of people reaching out to each other we had a masterclass in what disconnection feels like and therefore a very tangible example of how disconnected we become and how much we needed each other and how much we needed to care about each other. We're in each other's lounge rooms now. We're seeing each other's children's and dogs and not at our best self. So the level of intimacy that suddenly happened in the workforce was kind of crazy. And I think that the platform for care has been established and we don't want to lose it now. I totally agree. And one of the things I've really loved seeing is the extent to which, you know, I don't want to put too much of a gender bias on this because I think there's too much gender bias in, well, in everything basically, but but I've been really delighted to see men in particular step into a place of greater vulnerability. There's that kind of stereotype that blokes don't really want to talk about feelings too much and it all might be a bit too confronting. But what I've seen is this recognition that vulnerability is not weakness. Vulnerability is courage. Mm. And it's the first thing we look for in another person and often the last thing we want to reveal in ourselves. 
but it's always experienced as courage by those who see it in another person. And where I've seen those kind of leaders, and I think it's possible that some of the listeners on today's podcast might be in those kinds of cultures which are a bit blokey and, you know, we don't talk too much about our feelings, but where people have had the courage to step into a little bit more vulnerability, it just makes everything work better. It's definitely not weakness. It is always courage. And it gives permission in a way that we can do it for each other as peers. We can be open and share with each other to set that culture of caring section. But when a leader does it, when a leader says, I'm struggling, when a leader says, I've actually got some personal stuff I'm dealing with, when a leader says, my brother had a mental health issue and this is what we're doing about it, it gives permission to other people to say, this is acceptable to talk about the rules of belonging. Oh, this is on the table. This doesn't have to be hidden. I don't have to cover it up. That's right. That sort of sharing, even from the leader, mm. does really help that sense of belonging. Yeah. I might want to move on to another question. Celeste, in your chapter in the book, What the Hell Do We Do Now?, you really talked about this idea of the why or the purpose. Because organizations spend a lot of time talking about their purpose and their mission, but it ends up being a poster on a wall. What is the potential downside of that? What is lost by not treating purpose as important as an organization treats its culture? And how can frontline managers create a sense of purpose in their teams? Mm. People's motivation in any team comes down to meaning, mastery, and autonomy. So give me the space to do a job in the way that I think it's going to work. Don't micromanage me. Let me get better and better at it. Coach me, help me so I can master it. But actually, most importantly for me, I think the fundamental is about meaning. So when I talk about connection, I talk about connecting to purpose and connecting to the individual's contribution. Darren, that thing you did today was brilliant because it directly impacts our customers in this way. Thank you. It's pretty simple. It's not complicated. You don't have to think about what's our purpose and how is this person's job matching it. It's actually just finding ways to stitch together the work the individual's doing and the bigger purpose, the impact it's having in the world or on their customers or what they're trying to achieve. And it can be at the organisational level or it can be just at the team level. So what we're trying to achieve is this and you impacted your teammates in this way by doing that work. I've seen some fantastic research around that whole idea of showing people the impact of their work. I remember seeing that it was, it was all about a team who was trying to help people. It was in a bank and it was the team that was supposed to be chasing the people who hadn't paid their mortgage. And they were a team who used to kind of threaten to send the men around to take a television away, those kind of guys. And then one day they got a new leader who said, no, we need to help people. If they haven't paid their mortgage, clearly they're having a problem. And so after about a year of shifting that whole purpose, they then brought in some of the customers and had them speak to the people who were in that team. And the customers were saying things like, when my dad died, I couldn't get access to the money in his account and so we got behind on our mortgage and I didn't know what to do. And you guys were so kind and helpful. That totally transformed our experience of those horrible first few months of grieving. And, you know, story after story after story about the impact of this team's work. And the research showed that that didn't just increase 
productivity and you know satisfaction and engagement and all the things you want to see more of initially it was still high a year later so just connecting people's work with the impact it has on whoever they're trying to serve has a massive impact on performance and productivity yeah that idea of connecting people to the customers how powerful that can be and to me that relates to purpose because purpose is not your product purpose is the difference in the lives of your customers that your product makes yeah. and if you can expose your people to the difference that your product or service has made in your customers the research just shows how incredibly powerful that is to listen to customers on the other end struggling and how our people really help them get through their struggles yeah yeah totally and i think we're all of us wanting to make a difference Otherwise, what the heck are we doing here? Mm. And so I think the leader's role in that is exactly what Celeste said. Find a connection between what one of your team did today and the impact that they've had and just tell them that. That's right. Makes a massive difference. It does. Okay, my next question for both of you is one of the most common complaints about culture that I get from managers is that we're fantastic, everybody else is not. All right, so they believe that the culture across the organization is dysfunctional or just not strong or good, and they use it as an excuse. So let's assume they're right. They're probably not, but let's assume they're right. So how can managers actually working in an organization where they believe the culture is not strong or positive, but they want to build a positive culture within their team, what might be some advice and some hints and tips that you might give those managers to build that culture in their team? Fiona, can we start with you? Yeah, so firstly, I think it's fascinating how tribal human beings are. Because we're hardwired to belong in groups, we immediately create us and them. We create us and them everywhere we go. Mm. There's a fantastic piece of research that shows if you get a group of people who've never met each other before and you put them in a big room and you split them down the middle and you say, okay, one side's the orange team and one side's the purple team, it takes less than 10 minutes for people to like and trust those in their own team more and to dislike and distrust those in the other team more. Less than 10 minutes for a whole group of people who've never met each other before. So the first thing I would say to the leader who says, we're fine, they're the problem, is to just remember that your brain is telling you that, right? Your brain is hardwired to to think about humans in groups, in tribes. So that's the first thing to do. Notice notice your own thinking pattern. But in terms of wanting to make a difference in your own team, the first thing, again, I would say is notice what earns belonging and what loses belonging in your team. And once you've noticed that, ask yourself the question, are those behaviours that earn belonging the ones we want to see more of so that we can be more effective? And if yes, then encourage them. Make sure that you reward people by giving them great feedback and by helping them understand the impact of their work. So as the leader, you're giving a big signal about what is good in this place. So long as you continue to signal that those things that you want to see more of are the good things and the things you want to see less of, you either ignore or have a quiet word with someone, not in front of others, ideally. So you can absolutely create a little kind of bubble in your organization of psychological safety and of belonging. It's definitely possible to do, and I've seen it done many, many times. So you don't have to be a victim of the larger culture of your organization if you're leading one team. Great, thanks Fiona. And Celeste, what about you to have some top hints and tips for frontline managers to create the culture that they want to create? Yeah, I think 
I agree with what Fiona said. Part of the issue happens when we start defining our team as our little team. Mm. So I'll often work with teams on redefining team as a bigger group than just their immediate team. So starting to see their stakeholders, the other leaders, the people working upstream and downstream who are driving them crazy, who have the poor culture, actually extending some care and empathy to those people. I often say everybody comes to work to do a good job. And because we're tribal, we will often see people as other, different, not like us, not working as hard as us, not whatever. So actually talking to the team and in your own head, noticing as well, who are you defining as team? Because if your definition is very small, then you're going to start that tribal thing yourself. And actually what we want to do is expand our definition of team so that we can collaborate and connect more effectively together broadly. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the idea of team to even expand that beyond just people within your organization, that there is a whole group of stakeholders that it might even be external to you yeah. that are supporting a delivery of a service or a product to your customers or to the community. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting to see businesses who spout our culture is this and we treat our people like that, but look how they treat their suppliers. Because mm. I think you can tell so much about a company by how they treat their suppliers. Yeah. And if it's with care and connection and collaboration, then you can tell a lot about that team. Yeah, absolutely. So many of the organizations I worked for in the past, I sometimes felt like I had to apologize in advance with potential vendors <laughs> for the process of tendering and procurement that we're going to put you through. <laughs> we also like to finish our podcast with some personal stories. So I was wondering if both of you have a personal story that you'd like to share in terms of whether it was with a client or something you've experienced yourself where the culture had a significant impact, either positively or negatively. So what was that impact and what was the outcome? Fiona, do you have a story you could share? Yeah, look, I thought I would share one of working with a client where this leader had come in and sort of inherited a team that he'd never met before. And within a couple of weeks of joining the organization, he figured out that something was just not quite right. And he couldn't quite put his finger on what was happening. But there was all sorts of dysfunctional behavior. People were speaking about each other behind their backs. And he was getting lots of them coming to him complaining about their peers and so on. And he contacted me and said, look, I, I don't know what's going on here, but I need to really figure this out. Every time he would ask them in a group setting, I'm feeling like something's not quite right. Is everything okay? And they would all say, yes, everything's fine. But he knew it wasn't fine. So what we ended up doing was we had a day-long workshop and each person filled in a, a sort of basic personality questionnaire. And what we discovered was that the whole team was filled with people who really desperately wanted there to be harmony in the group. And so they were being so polite whenever they were in a group or even with each other that they basically created this place of false harmony. And so they couldn't actually cope with the fact that they needed to be able to do a little bit of conflict and do that well because they never got to that point. So it was this sort of double whammy. They were desperate for it all to be harmonious but so desperate for it to be harmonious that they were burying any conflict. And so it became this weird, fake environment 
once it became clear that false harmony wasn't what they wanted, they wanted real harmony, then we could have a real conversation about, okay, you can't just have harmony, you've got to have some conflict and you've got to be able to manage that well. It took a few months for them to practice this because it felt really uncomfortable. But after a while, they got really comfortable with the idea that a little bit of conflict, you know, letting that valve out a little bit at a time rather than just leaving it all to build up until it blows up. That was the way to go. And, you know, a couple of years on, they're still working on it, but they're doing so much better and they're all so much happier and there's no more false harmony, which is brilliant. Yeah, I'm always surprised by how often that happens in actual fact that managers and teams fool themselves that everything's fantastic because no one ever argues and everyone seems to really like each other. And But in actual fact, there's this simmering resentment because issues don't get spoken about. Great story. Thank you, Fiona. And Celeste, a personal story you'd like to share. Yeah, I actually want to share a story about how amazing a positive, strong culture can be, the impact it can genuinely have. And I worked with a client many, many years ago now, and they were a biscuit manufacturer in a regional location. And something happened. It was a Japanese head office. And something happened with their licensing where they had to shut down all manufacturing for a period of months. So what that obviously meant was that everyone would not be able to work for several months because they couldn't afford to pay people while the factory wasn't operational. And what I found astounding was they took a vote and they decided that there wasn't a lot of opportunities locally. So they would band together and do everything that they could to keep the factory up to date, fully ready to start at any moment and each other supported until they got the go ahead to start again. So not a single person left and they showed up and I went there one day, they showed up at work every day and they cleaned the machinery and they hung out with each other and they did that day in, day out for months until they finally got the clearing on the licensing to start manufacturing again. And what happened when they started was the level of connection that they had in their business and in their culture meant that their performance went through the roof. And the Japanese head office was so incredibly thrilled with this small manufacturing unit in the middle of nowhere for them that they ended up flying every single worker to Japan 12 months later for a trip to thank them for what they'd done and their commitment and loyalty. And I often think about the people that I met, you know, on the factory floor that day and the level of trust and commitment and humanity it took to do that for each other. And it, it shows you what you can achieve. They had a great culture before this started. They were led very effectively. So when this happened, they dealt with it very effectively. Yeah, any crisis, great or small, brings people together and just God, why can't we be like that all the time? All the time. Why can't we do that? And I found at the beginning of the COVID crisis that a lot of senior leaders were asking, why can't we be like this all the time? How can we find ways to make this behavior permanent? Yeah. Those are both great stories. And thank you very much for your time. Just so our listeners know, we always provide links to any research that you mentioned on our FastLead website. And before we sign off, Fiona and Celeste, I was wondering if you could just Say a few words in terms of what you do and the services that you provide for your clients and why you do it. So maybe Celeste, let's start off with you this time. Sure. I work with leaders and their teams to become more connected and more high performing. 
I believe that connected leaders build connected teams and that they build connected cultures. But the reason I actually started my business was sitting outside those businesses in London and seeing people check their souls out at the door as they walk through one revolving door or another. And I decided that I want to change the way that work worked. And even if that was one person at a time, that they could learn the skills that we were never taught at primary school to create a place of safety and belonging and positivity and connectedness. That's what I wanted to do. Brilliant. Thank you. And Fiona? I work with leaders and their teams to create cultures that people really want to belong to. So that takes the form of things like culture masterclasses where people can learn what culture is and isn't and how it really works. I do executive coaching with senior leaders. I do group coaching and leadership development programs. And then I work with teams on what's their culture now and what they want it to be and how are they going to get it from A to B. And for me, it's an absolute passion project because I've been in roles that look at and work with culture for many, many years. And I've seen the fundamental difference that it can make to everybody's lives. So exactly as Celeste was saying, you know, people who dread coming to work every day, I just want to make them love coming to work every day. I want to make them come to a place where they feel cared for, they feel seen, they feel part of something bigger than themselves, and they enjoy every day. One person at a time, I'm going to just keep working until everybody wants to come to work. Great. Sounds like the three of us have very similar values and purpose. Thank you very much to Fiona Robertson and Celeste Halliday on this podcast about building the culture that you want to have for our frontline leaders. It's been great to be with you. Thanks, Darren. Thank you. And I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Fast Leader Podcast. I'm Darren Fox, Chief Research Officer and Principal Consultant at HFL. You can email us at info at with any questions. We'd love to hear your ideas about topics for future podcasts. You can also check out the FastLead website, fastlead.com, for supporting material from this podcast. Watch out for our future podcasts as we explore each of the 14 FastLead topics in more detail and discuss some of the latest management research, news, and topical issues of the day. And until next time, this has been the FastLead Podcast. Thank you. Thank you.